1: thrusting space science into the audio dimension this is naked astronomy
0: Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and each month I'll be bringing you the latest astronomical and cosmological news, meeting some of the world's finest space researchers and tackling your cosmic questions. This month we have joy, we have fun, we have seasons on the dwarf planet of Pluto.
2: And this is quite unexpected, you know, you tend to think of Pluto as a little sort of remote icy rocky world. But here it is, it's going into quite dynamic changes that match this idea of dynamic and global, perhaps seasonal changes on the surface of the dwarf planet.
0: Plus how astronomers mistook a pair of colliding asteroids for a unique comet, evidence of helium in the young universe, observations of the spokes of Saturn's rings and the sad story of the spirit rover. Also, the Solar Dynamics Observatory mission launched this month, so I spoke to Chris Davis from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory about the aims of the mission, the results of previous missions studying the sun, and quite why the sun is so important to astronomy.
1: The sun is the source of of all the energy we get on Earth, apart from a small amount which comes up from the the Earth's core. So it's important to understand it as as an entity in itself, but It is also the the closest star to Earth, and it's a unique opportunity to study a star in such detail. It enables us to understand some astronomical observations, and we can infer changes in other stars by studying ours in that detail.
0: And I meet Ben Oppenheimer, Associate Curator of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History, to find out why it's so
3: difficult to see planets around other stars. These Earth-like planets, if they're really like Earth, they're going to be 10 to the 12 times fainter than the star. So for every 10 to the 12 photons coming from the star, only one is coming from that planet. (laughs) So it's a tricky business.
0: So just one photon that you do want compared to 999,999,999,999 photons that you don't. That's 12 nines in case you weren't following me. Plus, we'll be answering your science questions, finding out how the slingshot effect works, where Titan's atmosphere comes from, and how the stars are distributed. As always, if you've got any questions, feedback or comments for us, let us know by emailing astronomy at scientists.com.
1: Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. And now, we
0: join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. We'll be hearing from Dominic Ford, who works at Cambridge University's Cavendish Laboratory, and Andrew Ponson, a researcher at the Cavalier Institute for Cosmology. But first, we speak to Carolyn Crawford, astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, to find out what's been on her mind this month.
2: Well... I've noticed a nice news story about poor neglected Pluto, that dwarf planet right out on the outskirts of our solar system. And the interesting thing is the Hubble Space Telescope has released a new quite detailed image. I do have to say it's not Fantastic. I mean, you're not expecting a picture that shows you sort of craters and mountains and all kinds of details on the surface because this dwarf planet is so very far away. We can barely resolve any structures on its surface, even with the Hubble Space Telescope. The best that can do is sort of more or less see colour patches that are hundreds of kilometres across. However, this new image... It shows these patches, there's white, which we think is ice reflecting the light. There are sort of reddish-brown patches, which we think are hydrocarbon residues due to the interaction of the methane atmosphere with the sunlight. But the most curious thing is that when you compare this map to one that was taken about 10 years previously, there have been these large-scale structural changes and shifts in the terrain of Pluto over that 10-year period. And even some of them um, have happened perhaps over a time scale of two years while all these latest set of images that have been compiled into the new image were being taken. So the colours have changed and the bright and the dark patches have shifted. So the northern hemisphere's got a lot brighter and the southern hemisphere's got redder and darker. And this is quite unexpected. You know, you tend to think of Pluto as a little sort of remote, icy, rocky world, but here it is, it's going into quite dynamic changes. On its terrain, and also ground-based observations of the same timescale suggest that there are changes in the atmosphere, sort of like the nitrogen content perhaps of the atmosphere, that match this idea of dynamic and global, perhaps seasonal changes on the surface of the dwarf planet. We would expect seasons on Pluto... The thing is that we wouldn't expect them to change quite so abruptly. You've got to remember, Pluto is so far out. It takes 248 years to go once around the sun. So you'd expect the change from one season to the next to be very, very slow and gradual. But what it seems is that because Pluto is such a sort of stretched, elongated orbit, that it really does speed up when it gets close to the sun. And maybe that makes the transition from one season to another. Much quicker than we'd expected, much more abrupt. So anyway, tantalising images of Pluto. It's particularly interesting because, of course, we're all waiting for the New Horizons spacecraft to reach Pluto in July 2015. We haven't sent any space probe anywhere near Pluto before. It's going to take us images as it flies within about 10,000 kilometres of the surface. So this is just kind of wetting our appetite for the images we'll see then.
0: It's strange to think that we're starting to learn quite a lot about extrasolar planets, and yet there's still a lot that we need to learn about our own astronomical backyard.
2: This is the one bit of astronomy where we can still explore, and we can actually go out and look at it. We can only do that within our solar system. Even though we have to wait a while to get to understand Pluto in depth, we're never going to be able to find so much detail about these extrasolar planets.
0: Now, other things in our solar system in the asteroid belt have been pretending to be something that they're not, Dominic.
4: Yes, that's right. On the 6th of January, a mysterious new asteroid was discovered by a linear sky survey in the asteroid belt. Now, discoveries of new asteroids themselves are fairly unexceptional these days. There are several computerised surveys which are continually scanning the sky looking for new asteroids. And I was looking on the internet last night, I think they've discovered about half a million new asteroids in the last 10 years. these discoveries are coming at a tremendous rate. But this one immediately caught people's eye because it looked a bit different. Now normally asteroids just appear as points of light on the sky because these lumps of rock are so small that even with the highest resolution telescopes you can't resolve any features on their surfaces. They just look like stars. But this one appeared to have a smudge around it and moreover it had a tail going off in one direction. And this suggested that it had some halo of material around it, and perhaps it was a bit more like a comet. So back in mid-January, people were mostly thinking this was the first comet ever to have been discovered in the asteroid belt. People have speculated for a long time about whether there might be comets in the asteroid belt, but mostly people have thought that the asteroid belt is too warm for these icy bodies to live for long periods. So any comets that were that close into the Sun would have evaporated by now. So this sparked quite a lot of interest. And then in the last week of January, NASA pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at this object to try and get a higher resolution image of it. And what the Hubble Space Telescope revealed was an X-shaped pattern of filaments close into the nucleus of this asteroid. And this didn't look at all like what comets normally look like. Comets are normally fairly smooth, in appearance, and these these filaments were not really like anything that had ever been seen before. And what people now think is that this is two asteroids which have smashed straight into one another, created a huge amount of debris, and these X-shaped filaments are streaks of material that have been thrown off from this very violent collision. And obviously this is still quite a developing story. The theory has changed once in the last month, it may yet change again. What I really like about this story is that astronomers spend so much time looking at really very distant objects. This is something which is, comparatively speaking, on our doorstep, and yet it's really getting people scratching their heads about what's going on.
0: Do we think this happens a lot, though? You'd have thought
4: my image as
0: a layperson of the asteroid belt is that it's, it's quite densely crammed full of rocks. You'd expect they'd be jostling into each other and, and breaking apart quite often.
4: Yes, people have been theorising for a long time that these asteroids are continually bumping into one another and breaking apart into fragments, and then maybe somehow these fragments are sticking back together again to make bigger asteroids.
2: One thing that's very clear is that even though we might expect asteroids, we certainly think they've undergone a lot of collisions within the asteroid belt, it's actually pretty unusual to find one just after it's happened, because if this tail is due to an impact, it's a very transient event, you don't expect this cloud of material to hang around for long, so we've been incredibly lucky just to catch this asteroid collision in the act.
4: There's been a lot of expectation that we would hope to see one at some point, but this is the first time that we've actually produced an image like this of this train wreck.
0: (laughs) Now, Andrew, could you take us quite a bit further out
5: Uh, Yeah, I can take you right out to the edge of the universe, uh, from the small to the large, with the release last month of the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe seven-year data. So this is a a satellite that belongs to NASA. It's colloquially known as WMAP, that's the um, acronym. And it's basically our foremost observatory at the moment of the cosmic microwave background. And that is the light that has been streaming through our universe since around 300,000 years after the Big Bang. As a result, when we pick up this light, we get to know an awful lot about the early universe and get clues as to what it was doing all the way back to, to the very first stages of the Big Bang. Now, WMAP itself is the highest resolution all-sky survey of this light that has been produced to date. And when its first-year results came out several years ago, it was absolutely revolutionary. And then a bit later, they released some uh, three-year results, and and they were exciting. Uh, And and then we had the five-year results and now the seven-year results, and they're not quite as exciting as they were when the results first came out. Something of a law of diminishing returns going on. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and what the observatory does, in fact, is it scans the entire sky multiple times each year and so you might think therefore that you don't get anything else from uh, looking for several years but in fact each time you scan it you get slightly better accuracy on your results so there are certainly gains to be had by carrying on scanning for this kind of length of time but you're exactly right you know there's a law of diminishing returns and the longer you scan for the smaller those returns become. And so WMAP is now really reaching the end of its useful lifetime, but nonetheless there are still some interesting results coming out. One of the ones that that caught my eye is that the WMAP data, in conjunction with a, a couple of other smaller scale CMB observatories, is now able to detect directly the existence of helium in the very early universe. Now, according to our standard model of the Big Bang, there had to be around 25% helium making up the composition of the early universe. But until now, it hadn't been directly detected in the early universe, whereas now we're absolutely certain because of just slight changes in the way that the patterns in the cosmic microwave background appear, we're absolutely certain that that helium really was there. So this helps shore up our picture of, of what was going on.
0: Is this a bit like using spectroscopy? So we look at the light that comes out of something, we can see what atoms might be present. Can you look in the cosmic microwave background radiation and do the same sort of thing? Actually, it's a very
5: different technique in this case. The main interaction of that cosmic microwave background light, when it was just starting to become decoupled from the matter at around 300,000 years, the main interaction is with electrons. And the existence of helium locks up some of those electrons. So it's almost the absence of such a high level of interaction with electrons that leads us to the telltale sign that helium was there. So looking to the future, the really exciting new work in this area will be done by Planck, the European satellite. That's up there taking data now, but all that data is embargoed uh, for at least the next two years. But uh, if you study the way that it's working, the people in the know will actually have a full sky map of data from Planck, but they won't be talking about it for a couple of years, unlike the WMAP data which you can actually
0: go and download onto your computer from the NASA website. Now, one of the most iconic images taken of our solar system is, of course, of Saturn's incredible rings, but they have also been in the news this month.
2: Yet, yeah, this is a news item I've picked out mainly out of a sense of nostalgia because one of the key things that got me into astronomy was remembering as a teenager watching all the first fantastic pictures from the gas giants that the Voyager space probes sent back, you know, and they were plastered all over the front of the newspapers. And this was the first close look in 1980 we had of the rings around Saturn and some of the fantastic structures within them. So this news item really is revisiting some of those structures within the rings. Now, just to to recap, I mean, the rings of Saturn, they're in fact thousands of ringlets and they're all made of sort of chunks of ice and rock, probably the remains of some shattered moon that got too close to Saturn many years ago. But within these rings and ringlets there are all kinds of weird structures like braiding of rings but one that's particularly transient and puzzling are that you get bright, they're like spokes, they call them spokes but they're radial features so they are across the rings, distributed across the rings and sometimes they only last for a few hours and they're very bright and these are Always remained a puzzle. Well, the Cassini spacecraft, which is still flying around Saturn, imaging its its rings and its moons, has analysed some of the light, the infrared light reflected from these particles and told us more about them. First of all, as suspected, they're bright because they're chunks of water ice, so they're nice and reflective. But the curious thing is that these little particles are much larger than the average. I mean, they're still tiny. They're still a few thousands or millionths of a metre across. But we'd expected them to be much smaller. The fact they're larger poses a challenge for explaining, A, how these structures arise and how they can shift around and move so quickly because it larger particles will need much more energy to sort of congregate and disperse and move around within the rings and we still don't really know what's driving that so I was just fascinated to see that so many years down the line they're still posing a puzzle the other thing that's nice of course is that this is still some new data from Cassini and I'm delighted to say this whole mission its lifetime has been extended now to 2017 And it just demonstrates that it's still returning fabulous images, fabulous information. It's going to go on doing so for many years yet.
0: So that's excellent news about Cassini's continuing mission and its extension of its mission. Sadly, we can't say the same about the Mars rover spirit. Unfortunately not. In the podcast
5: last month, we very excitedly reported that uh, the uh, Spirit rover on Mars had, after being stuck in the mud for many months, finally managed to move two centimetres south, I think it was. Um, but shortly after that, on January the 26th, NASA announced that that was all they'd managed and they were no longer going to carry on with attempts to make the Spirit rover mobile again. Now, the reason they've given up is that we're actually heading uh, into the late Martian autumn for the re- Region in which Spirit is landed and the problem that that poses is that there's less sunlight available it becomes rather hard to keep the batteries charged up and moving around then becomes very wasteful so they used what energy they had left to orient it as best as they could so that it would carry on picking up solar energy so that it can carry on operations as basically a static science platform. But the good news is that Opportunity, the the other Martian lander, is still mobile. And let's face it, they are 2,200 days into their 90-day lifespan. So
0: uh, even though one's stuck, I think they did pretty well. So three cheers for the Spirit rover, now entering semi-retirement as a static platform. That was Andrew Ponson, and before him Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford, with a roundup of Space Science News. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions.
1: Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientistscom forward slash astronomy.
0: Still to come, we find out how to block the light from a star and see its orbiting planets, and why moons orbiting a brown dwarf might be a good place to look for life. But first, this month saw the launch of the Solar Dynamics Observatory, or the SDO, which will give us an unprecedented view of our sun. All being well, we should start to receive data in May this year. To find out more about previous sun-studying missions and what we can expect to find with the SDO, I spoke to Chris Davis from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire.
1: The Solar Dynamics Observatory is the latest in a fleet of missions looking at the Sun and it's unique uh, amongst them in that it's going into a geostationary Earth orbit which means it's going to be positioned directly above a single point on the Earth. And the exciting thing about that is that it means that we can have a much higher data rate, we can get much more information back from the observatory. So the actual spacecraft is going to be taking very high-resolution images, and then it's going to take them very frequently as well. And we can have a much more accurate examination of the processes going on in the sun at much higher resolution.
0: So it needs to be geostationary, just so that we can have enough bandwidth coming down from it in order to have all of these unprecedentedly high-resolution images that we're getting of the sun?
1: That's right. We have two other missions at the moment. Um, Well, certainly there's more than two, but the two that I'm associated with, there's SOHO, which is a a solar mission that's been in space now since 1995. And that's sitting at the point between the sun and the Earth where the gravity of the Earth and the sun cancel out. So it's a million miles upstream of us in the solar wind. And that has its challenges. It's it's a long distance to transmit the information back again. Uh, The second mission I'm working with is STEREO, which is uh, another NASA mission sending two spacecraft out sideways either side of the earth to take stereoscopic images of the sun and as those two spacecraft drift away from the earth the amount of information they can send back is getting progressively less and less and less so those two spacecraft give us unique views of the sun but they don't give us that detailed view that uh, the Solar dynamics observatory will
0: obviously the sun is vital to us it's the most important star in the universe to every human alive but what is it that's so interesting about it for all of these different missions
1: The sun is the source of of all the energy we get on earth apart from a small amount which comes up from the the earth's core so it's important to understand it as a as a entity in itself because it influences the earth so much but it is also the 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 closest star to earth and it's a unique opportunity to study a star in such detail so it tells us something about the earth space environment and we're looking at the sun and how it varies we know it has an 11 year activity cycle and that that activity cycle has implications for the safety of astronauts and the reliability of spacecraft. But also, by observing a star in such detail, it enables us to understand some astronomical observations and we can infer changes in other stars by studying ours in that detail.
0: So with the Solar Dynamics Observatory, is it just the visible light from the sun that we're looking at or are we hoping to see something in the invisible
1: light ranges as well? One of the great advantages of the Dynamic Observatory is it has a very high resolution imaging capability uh, in the extreme ultraviolet. Uh, and not only that, but it is also measuring the extreme ultraviolet spectrum of the sun. Now this is uh, a light that's very energetic. It's emitted from The parts of the sun that are incredibly hot, and it's likely to come from the the solar corona, the outer regions of the solar solar atmosphere, these get heated to to millions of degrees, and you can't see them from Earth. Um, On the surface of the Earth, all that radiation is absorbed by the atmosphere, so you have to get above the atmosphere to see that. The reason we're interested in this uh, extreme ultraviolet radiation is not only that it's a signal of where the sun is most uh, heated and most energetic, but it's also some part of the solar light curve, if you like, that varies much more widely over the solar cycle than we'd previously um, thought. We know that the sun has this 11-year cycle in activity, and we know that sometimes it it has more solar flares and there are more storms coming out from the sun uh, at certain years. But the light coming out from the sun is remarkably stable in fact for for many years, it was known as the solar constant it 's the amount of, of actual radiation coming out from the sun. We now are beginning to realize that in these extreme ultraviolet wavelengths it, it does actually vary a lot more, in fact, maybe even a factor of ten times more than the variability of the light that we 've been looking at and this may give us some clues as to um, the energy cycles that are going on in the sun
0: so How does the variability of the Sun actually affect us on Earth and also all of the equipment that we've got out in space, the satellites, and bless them, the astronauts, who are far more exposed to the vagrancies of the Sun than we
1: are? Well, the Sun gives off what are known as coronal mass ejections, which is a dull name for a very exciting uh, event. It's an eruption of a billion tonnes of material from the Sun, and that that travels through space at at many hundreds of kilometres a second. If one of those comes towards the Earth, then... Sort of things that it can do. It can cause electrical uh, failure in satellites or certainly electrical glitches in satellites. Uh, it can cause uh, electrical currents to surge along power lines on the ground, especially in countries like Canada and Alaska where you've got very large grids running um, across the country in, in straight lines. And the most beautiful consequence is the aurora. This is all the the particles from the solar wind interacting with the Earth's magnetic field and pouring down into the atmosphere and and lighting it up like an old-fashioned television screen. All of these things are going on, and it's it's particles coming past the Earth that uh, obviously uh, are a radiation hazard to astronauts as well if they're out there in space. So missions like STEREO have been looking to predict what direction those storms are coming in so that we can have a bit of advanced warning as to when they're coming past the earth.
0: And I assume we've had plenty of exciting data from Stereo as well. The Solar Dynamics Observatory's only just launched. What have we learned from Stereo?
1: Well, Stereo has shown us that even though the sun is incredibly quiet, we, we happened to launch into a, a phase of the solar cycle where we knew the sun was was, it was in a, a low in its activity, but that we were expecting it to be building up again uh, over the last year or so. Um, but the sun decided not to. It's, it's been incredibly quiet. There's been no sunspots, no real activity on the, on the surface of the sun. And so we know it's been the, the quietest it's been for around 100 years. But Stereo has still seen over 400 of these mass ejections. So we know that even though the sun's incredibly quiet, there's a lot going on. So that's really going to help us understand what happens during a quiet sun as well. We know that it's not as quiet as we thought it was.
0: So what does a quiet sun mean for us on Earth? Does it have any influence on the climate?
1: A quiet sun means that there's less solar activity, there's less of these storms, there's fewer solar flares. So um, there, are, there are people who are investigating changes uh, uh, in the sun and how that affects climate, but these are very subtle effects. I mean, One of the most commonly talked about is the last time the sun was particularly inactive was back in the 1600s, in a period known as the Maunder Minimum, when the sun had almost no sunspots on it for an entire cycle. It missed out an entire solar cycle. And during this time, the Earth was remarkably cold. There were frost fairs on the Thames, for example, every year because the, the, the Thames froze over. Now although there are other environmental conditions to think of, for example the, the Thames has been narrowed so it flows a lot more quickly these days and so it doesn't freeze over nearly so readily, there are subtle indications that solar activity can have an, an influence on the climate. But we're only really just beginning to understand the the, the subtleties. We also know from the last hundred years or so that the variabilities that we're seeing in the Sun can't explain all of the temperature rises we've been seeing on the Earth. When the sun's inactive, it has very few solar flares and solar mass ejections going off. And a solar flare is a a very intense burst of of X-rays. Now, these can interact with our upper atmosphere and influence radio communication. So we get many more shortwave radio blackouts during a solar maximum. So for us on the ground, we have less surprises in the, in the radio reception of people who use um, shortwave radio to communicate around the world. And these aren't just radio amateurs. This is transatlantic aircraft and, for example, the, the Flying Doctor Service in Australia. These all use shortwave radio to communicate. So it's, it's a lot more predictable for those people at a solar minimum.
0: As you said, stereo is steadily getting further away. We're getting less information from it. What do you think will be the next
1: step? Every single one of these missions raises more questions than it answers. For example, with Stereo, uh, one of the things that we would now like to do is to see if it's worth doing this sort of forecast operationally. We're, We're able to predict at the moment whether storms are coming towards the Earth. Would it be worth putting spacecraft and parking them ahead of the Earth and and behind the Earth so that we could actually do this as a a regular forecast, is that something that would be of worth to spacecraft operators? If we're going to send astronauts out beyond the safety of the Earth's magnetic field, if we're going to send them out to um, lunar bases and onto Mars in the future, then these planets don't have their own protective environments. They don't have atmospheres. Well, Mars has a very thin atmosphere, but neither of them have magnetic fields, and it's that magnetic field which deflects most of the particles away from Earth. So any astronauts in those environments are going to be particularly vulnerable. So they're going to be much more reliant on, on a, a space weather forecast to protect them on their bases.
0: And if space tourism takes off, we'll want to check the space weather forecast before we set off on our journeys off the planet. That was Chris Davis from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Missions like STEREO and the Solar Dynamics Observatory rely on finding out as much about the sunlight as possible, but for some astronomers, light from a star is precisely what they don't want to see. Ben Oppenheimer is Associate Curator of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History, and he studies exoplanets and a type of failed star called brown dwarfs. Finding these buried in the glare from their parent star presents a number of challenges.
3: Well, there are a number of ways to detect these things. What I'm working on is trying to see them directly. I want to see what these things look like. And when you're trying to actually see a planet around a nearby star, you have this terrible problem that the star is many millions to billions of times brighter than the planet. And so the planet will be lost in the glare of the star. So what do you do? Well, you can study these things indirectly, which is largely how people have done this to date. You look at the star and you look for tiny modifications to the star's light or the star's position that tell you that a planet is there. And there's quite a bit you can do with that. It's, it's exciting work. Um, first of all, you can discover that there are planets around these stars. Uh, you can start to discern a few things about their atmospheres, but you're limited. You really need to separate the light of the star from that of the planet, and then we can get into really doing the astrophysics of these objects. So you need to find some way to block out the light from that star. Absolutely, yeah. So the the real trick, and largely what I'm working on these days, is a technique called chronography, which is essentially creating an artificial eclipse of this distant star. It's much like when you're up on stage or say, uh, late at night, a car is approaching you, you'll hold up your hands so you can see a bit better. We do this in a slightly more precise way in our instruments with distant stars to try to see very faint objects next to them. So right now, I've got a project which partially involves the University of Cambridge. I'm working with Ian Parry here, and we built an instrument that does exactly this, uh, and we use it regularly uh, at a Palomar Observatory uh, in California. Could you not just do exactly
0: what you've just said and put something in the way between you and the star? Perhaps a, a
3: large disk and just hold it up between your telescope and the star itself? Absolutely. Uh, this is, in fact, one of the techniques is, is exactly that. You place a large, what we call star shade, out at a tremendous distance away from the telescope. This is tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of kilometers. The problem there is that you have to position these things very carefully. There are some plans to do space missions like this. For example, you could take uh, even the Hubble Space Telescope and put one of these shades in a separate spacecraft. That's a large technical problem. And, of course, you now have to coordinate two different spaceships and all this sort of thing. So we try it a, a little bit easier way in the sense that we have very small optics, tiny one-inch-sized pieces of glass that we use inside the telescope in a camera that's attached to the telescope. It's a little bit easier to do that.
0: (laughs) So rather than
3: interrupting the light before it gets to your
0: telescope, you're tweaking what the telescope actually receives in order to cancel out the light from the
3: star. Exactly. We're essentially manipulating the starlight at a very, very precise level. This glare that you see around a star is highly amplified by any defects in the optics of your telescope and in the camera that you're using to image things. So we have to control those defects very, very carefully. A little bump on one of these mirrors at the level of a few nanometers is enough to disrupt the light so much that you just won't see anything, uh, even like Jupiter, which is a rather large planet, around a distant star. So we have to be very, very careful with these things. The benefit of a star shade, as you mentioned before, is that the light doesn't even get into the telescope in the first place. So you're starting out uh, at a much better situation. It's just the other technical problems are (laughs) a little insurmountable at the moment. (laughs) So it sounds like a very
0: big technical compromise in order to block out the light that you don't want. How much light do you actually get from the planet? I'd
3: imagine it must be minuscule. Well, you'd think these things are ridiculously faint, but actually they're not. Around bright stars, say you're looking for reflected light off of a planet. Although Jupiter would be about 10 to the 8 to 10 to the 9 times fainter than the star itself, that's not that faint in terms of the th- sorts of things that astronomers typically look at. People, If you talk to a, a cosmologist, they're looking at things that are so ridiculously faint that you know it might be... Less than a photon per couple minutes, you're looking at things that are just ridiculously faint in comparison to the planets. It's not the intrinsic faintness of the planets that makes them hard to study, it's that damn starlight. <laughs> what
0: sort of planets can you see around this? You mentioned things to the scale of Jupiter, and as you said, these are
3: very big planets. Could you see anything Earth sized? Obviously, everybody wants to know, are there places like Earth out there? And uh, is, if there are, is life prevalent on them? For a number of years, I, I worked to define the science goals and uh, how they feed into some of the technical aspects of a mission called the Terrestrial Planet Finder. The purpose of that is to make a coronagraphic telescope in space that would be able to actually see a planet like Earth around, say, the closest 100 or so stars. There, the problem is that these Earth-like planets, if they're really like Earth, they're going to be 10 to the 12 times fainter than the star. Now you're really looking, talking about a needle in the haystack problem. So for every 10 to the 12 photons coming from the star, only one is coming from that planet. (laughs) So it's a tricky business. What we can do now are warm, uh, very young planets, sort of like the size of Jupiter. These things are still hot. They're so young that they haven't quite cooled down to what you might call steady-state temperature. And because they're hot, they're much brighter. Can you use the same techniques to block out infrared light as well as looking in the visible? Yeah, in fact, this project that I have going on at Palomar is operating solely in the infrared. One of the benefits of that is that you can image other types of things. For example, many young stars have debris disks around them. This is dust that is presumably, in some cases beginning to form planets. Uh, And one of our discoveries a couple years ago was around this star called AB Auriga, this wonderful structure in the disk around it that seemed to indicate that something was forming there. So you see a little hole in the disk and some clumps, and it looks like uh, maybe there's something that we haven't quite seen yet just starting to accrete material and form who knows? Maybe something like Saturn or Jupiter. We'll have to wait <laughs> quite a long time to see what that is.
0: <laughs> so if you can get a relatively broad spectrum view of
3: these planets that you
0: couldn't see because of the glare of the sun, can we start to infer some things about the atmosphere
3: based on the reflected light? Absolutely. In fact, that's, that's where the real science is. The science here is taking the light and dissecting it, making a spectrum, so measuring the brightness as a function of colour, And when you do that, you can actually detect the presence of molecules like water, methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, even ozone would be detectable. This is exactly what we want to do. This is how you really get to the physics of it, and this is why we need the direct detection of these things. There are some objects that show spectra very similar to planets Uh, in the night sky, and those are brown dwarfs. These things have things like methane, water uh, in the form of steam, and carbon dioxide, and and one can actually study these and determine all kinds of things about the atmospheres. You can determine wind speeds, uh, upwellings, disequilibria between various chemical species, and in fact that's probably how life will be detected outside of our solar system, is by looking for... A disequilibrium in a couple of chemical species, say methane, water, oxygen, knowing that that disequilibrium is not a natural state of the atmosphere, but rather it's due to some sort of biological forcing. We know that our own atmosphere in Earth would be very, very different if all life just disappeared. This would be a very unpleasant place to live, actually, <laughs> uh, and for many billions of years. In fact, there was very little oxygen in our own Earth. It was only after the pre-Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago, when multicellular life started to really get going, that the atmosphere changed into what we consider breathable now, right?
0: <laughs> I'm assuming there that brown dwarfs, which in themselves are fascinating things, not Quite big enough to be a star, a little too big to be really considered a gas giant. They're not somewhere we should be
3: looking for life. Uh, probably not. Although there could be moons around these things, you know, that that are possibly habitable. I mean, one of the crazy things is that it, outside of Earth, uh, in our own solar system, some of the moons of, for example, Jupiter, like uh, Europa may in fact be a great place for life to live. There's tons of water there. There may be an ocean under its very icy surface. And who knows, maybe there's a fish there. (laughs) You know, I have this dream that there's a probe designed to go there and melt a hole. The dream is that they turn on the camera and there's a fish looking back, right? It would be a wonderful discovery.
0: A wonderful discovery, yes, but definitely a bit of a shock for us and for the fish. That was Ben Oppenheimer from the American Museum of Natural History explaining how small and precisely designed optics can cancel out the light from a star, making it easier to see the planets that orbit it. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. We want to hear from you about what you'd like to see included in our astronomy podcast, and we'd love to have you asking your own questions. So if you want to hear yourself on Naked Astronomy, if you think there's a topic that we should cover, or if you've got an interesting space science observation or experience to share with us, get in touch by email to astronomy at com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. First, Andrew Ponson answers Barry Bagus's question. How can you use the gravity of a planet as a slingshot to fire probes across the galaxy?
5: Yes, well, the slingshot effect is something that's now widely used to uh, give spacecraft a bit of a kick. So uh, one example uh, Carolyn mentioned earlier on, the Voyager 1 space probe. That's now 10.4 billion miles away from Earth, and that really means it's escaping entirely from the sun's gravity, and that's quite a feat. We couldn't do that using rockets alone, and... In fact, it was achieved by using Saturn and Jupiter uh, in this kind of slingshot arrangement. And what happens is that the spacecraft flies very close to a planet, and as it goes past, it actually gets a, a kick and picks up some extra energy. Now, how does that happen? Well, you can imagine... A situation where for instance you've just got a basketball this might not sound <laughs> uh, might not sound like a, a space example but it will become a space example so you've got a basketball and you drop it onto a hard surface and you know that of course it will bounce off that hard surface and it's going down with a certain speed and when it bounces it then comes up with the same speed Well, the key to turning that into an understanding of the slingshot effect is to adopt what we call a different frame of reference. It turns out the laws of physics take the same form if you decide to analyse them from inside, say, a moving train. So you can move at a constant speed and reanalyse the situation and get what must reduce to the same answer. So suppose you reanalyse this, but now you imagine instead of the basketball dropping towards the floor, you just change your frame of reference so that the floor comes up to meet the basketball. The basketball is stationary, the floor comes up to meet it, gives it a kick, and off goes the basketball. And at that point you think, that's interesting, where did the energy come from for that basketball to suddenly fly off? And the answer is that as well as the uh, basketball getting a kick from the floor, the floor also gets a kick from the basketball. So the floor is slowed down very slightly and the basketball is kicked up. Even in that very odd frame of reference, if you analyse everything correctly, the energy is still conserved. Now something very similar is going on with the slingshot effect that the probe that's being accelerated by the planet has actually stolen some of its energy. It seems even more magical because they don't actually ever come into contact. But what's happening is they're using the force of gravity to exchange energy.
0: So why doesn't the probe just get caught in the gravity? Say, when it goes past Jupiter, why doesn't it just get caught in and end up orbiting Jupiter? If you want to send a space probe into orbit around a
5: planet, it's actually a very hard technical thing to achieve because the reason something stays in orbit is because its speed that it approaches with is exactly matched in some sense to the strength of the gravity so that the kick that it keeps receiving from the gravity is just enough to keep its path curving round in a circle but not so much that it will actually get thrown away. So it's all to do with the relative speeds that you set up. And, of course, if you want to take advantage of the slingshot effect, you do need to make sure you don't accidentally end up in orbit. Some very clever rocket scientists, I suppose, are doing these calculations and making
0: sure they get the right outcome. Well, sometimes we say it's not exactly rocket science, but in this case it actually is. Caroline, we've had a question from Renée Roberts, who wants to know what the atmosphere of Titan consists of.
2: Titan's a very strange moon. It's the largest moon round Saturn. And when you see images of it, it doesn't look like what we might intuitively think a moon to resemble. It doesn't have craters. It's not a sort of barren world. In fact, you can't actually see the surface because it's all enshrouded by this very sort of orange coloured, very thick, opaque atmosphere that hides the ground from view. Now that's mostly nitrogen, it's sort of over 90% nitrogen. The remainder is methane and maybe is traces of few of the hydrocarbons. So when the sunlight acts on the methane, it breaks them up and produces some of that reddish colour in the atmosphere.
0: We know that with Earth, the atmosphere is generated by all sorts of different processes and it has changed a lot throughout Earth's history. How did Titan get its atmosphere?
2: Well, we think it's come actually from within Titan itself. It's not something left over from the formation of the planets and the moons. Instead, it's been generated since by volcanic activity from the core of the planet. And here we're talking cryovolcanoes that erupt on the surface and they release a lot of the gases that then go on to comprise the atmosphere. Now, things that we might expect, like carbon dioxide, would be solid ice because Titan's so remote from the sun, it's so cold there. But things like nitrogen can still be gases and they're the ones that are released into the atmosphere.
0: Renee also asked how Titan's actually able to keep hold of that atmosphere.
2: Well, this is the very interesting question about also why Titan of all the moons is the only one to show this kind of thick atmosphere. And it's a combination effects. It's first of all, it's a long way out in the solar system. I've already told you it's cold. It's about minus 180 degrees centigrade. That makes a big difference to how fast the molecules in the atmosphere are moving around. If you have a lower temperature, they're moving more slowly, they're more sluggish, they're less likely to sort of leak out and escape into space. The second factor is gravity. You need enough gravity, you need enough mass in the moon to keep that atmosphere tied to the planet. And that's, for example, one reason why a lot of the smaller moons don't have atmospheres because they don't have enough gravity. The third factor is Titan's proximity to Saturn Because it orbits so close, it produces sort of gravitational tidal effect, continual squeezing as Titan moves around in its orbit. And this is what heats up the interior and keeps it warm. Now, this is why I say our moon doesn't have any atmosphere, because it's so far from the Earth, and the Earth isn't particularly massive. Its core has long since cooled down and died out. Titan is so close to Saturn, it keeps this hot interior, it keeps the volcanoes, it keeps replenishing this atmosphere. So it's a combination of the large moon as well as the proximity to the planet. For an example, you could have the um, nearest moon to Jupiter, Io, incredibly volcanically active, but it is so small and less massive that it doesn't hang on to those gases, so it doesn't retain an atmosphere. So for Titan, it's very fortuitous. It's these three things in combination that have allowed it to be the only one of all the moons in our solar system that has an atmosphere.
0: So it's all about the trade-off between the different factors that influence the moon itself?
2: Yes, it's a very fine balance. And actually when you consider all the things that are involved in both creating an atmosphere, replenishing that atmosphere and keeping it stuck to the surface, it's amazing that uh, you have any moons with atmospheres at all.
0: Thank you very much. Andrew, we have a question from Nick Constantine that I think might be right up your street. He's talking about gravity waves. Principally, he said that we know gravity seems to travel at the speed of light, but we also know that light travels at different speeds in different media. Could the same be true of gravity, and are there any situations where we might find that the two travel at different speeds?
5: Yeah, well, the short answer is yes. So let's just take a step back and look at what gravity travelling really means. There are these things called gravitational waves, and they're a prediction of Einstein's uh, theories of general relativity, which basically describes gravity in the most complete way we currently know how, how to describe it. And indirectly, we have actually confirmed the existence of gravity waves. We haven't seen them directly, but we've seen objects like uh, pulsars being affected by the existence of gravity waves. Now, why why would they travel at the speed of light? Well, it comes down to the way that space and time are put together in Einstein's theory into one thing called space-time. And if you want to put uh, these two apparently rather separate entities, space and time, together into one mathematical object. You need a kind of exchange rate between space and time. You need to be able to say, OK, I give you one metre of space, and how much time do you give me back? Now, it turns out that in Einstein's theory, that exchange rate is exactly the speed of light. So it's like a fundamental exchange rate between space and time. It's then rather natural in a mathematical sense that light waves travel at the speed of light. They're kind of fundamental waves on this space-time background. And similarly, when gravity waves propagate, they pick up uh, exactly this speed uh, from the basic way in which space and time are put together. So it's not a coincidence at all that they travel at the same speed. It's actually built fundamentally into the laws of the universe. When we say that the speed of light has been slowed down by travelling through a medium, it doesn't exactly mean that the speed of light changes. One way of thinking about what's going on is that the light that's travelling through a medium is constantly interacting with the particles in that medium. It's almost as though it's being absorbed and re-emitted multiple times, and that's what's slowing it up. And in fact, you can come up with exactly the same thing for gravity waves just by putting some very dense matter in the way of a gravity wave that matter will interact with the gravity wave and in effect it will slow it down so I did uh, a little calculation of this this morning uh, you know very naive calculation so I wouldn't swear that these were the right results but this should give you a ballpark figure When we try and detect gravitational waves with something like the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, that's one of the few current experiments that are actually after these gravitational waves, we are looking for gravitational waves that are oscillating at around 1,000 oscillations per second. And if you take a wave like that and want to slow it down by just 1%, you would need a lump of matter that was extremely dense. In fact, I think you'd need a lump of matter that's about 20 trillion kilograms in every metre cubed. So in order to get any kind of effect on gravitational waves, you do need extreme situations. And of course, as a result, light, which can be much more easily slowed down by electric interactions that the gravitational wave doesn't have, uh, will often travel through certain medium much, much slower than the corresponding
0: gravity wave is. Well, that's really fascinating stuff. I did not know that. Dominic, let's come to you for the, the last question. There's actually two questions in one from Ralph Call, who's emailed us from Utah. And he wants to know if the Hubble telescope has observed any
4: stars. Well, it's observed quite a number of young stars. It's not actually the best suited telescope for observing the very early stages of star formation. For that, you really want to use an infrared telescope, such as NASA's. Spitzer Space Telescope, and we can start to understand that by thinking about the material which stars form from. The space between stars in galaxies like the Milky Way is filled with a mixture of hydrogen gas, which is potential fuel for new stars, some helium, and some solid particles which astronomers call dust. And this is a sort of sooty material which forms in the envelopes of previous generations of stars and which have been blown off and returned to the interstellar medium.
0: So not the same sort of dust that we'll find at home that gets hoovered up?
4: Not what you find under your bed, no. This is a rather gritty, sandy material. There's actually some graphite-like materials, rather similar to what you find in car exhaust. Stars are not dissimilar to cars, it seems. Now what happens when new stars form is that some of this interstellar material becomes compressed, perhaps a shock wave hits it and gives it a squeeze, and if the material becomes compressed enough, then it can become unstable against its own gravity, and it can start to collapse together to form a star. And the problem in observing this is that as the hydrogen gas compresses together, this dust also compresses together, and it forms quite literally a smokescreen around the star which is forming. And this is really infuriating because you've got this really interesting process of star formation going on, but it's hidden from view. And if you're looking with the Hubble Space Telescope, you can't do anything about that. You have to wait until the star turns on and it blows this smoke screen away and reveals what's going on inside. If you have an infrared telescope, the situation's a bit better because infrared radiation has a slightly longer wavelength and it finds it easier to diffract around these dust grains and you can often see the star formation going on very much earlier. Having said that, once these stars do turn on, you actually don't need a telescope as powerful as Hubble's Space Telescope to see them. If you know the constellation of Orion, which is uh, very easy to see at this time of year, at about 10, 11 o'clock, and you look at the sword, which is hanging down on Orion's left side, you should see a fuzzy patch. You can see it with the naked eye. It's even better through a pair of binoculars. And that is a star-forming region. And if you look through a pair of binoculars and you see some stars in that fuzzy patch, those are stars forming out of a cloud of gas which has collapsed.
0: So once the stars are old enough and have really got started, then we can see them very easily and we don't need something as powerful as the Hubble. The other part of his question, also about stars, stars and galaxies, Um, he wanted to know if the stars in the galaxies are randomly distributed with regard to size or if you get sort of clumps of all the big stars will be here and then the smaller ones will be out here.
4: Yes, stars of different masses are quite distinctly segregated in different parts of the galaxy. We think that the gas clouds which form stars, if you like, the star factories, turn out roughly the same distribution of masses of star regardless of where they are in the galaxy. But we think the segregation arises because stars with different masses live for very different amounts of time. If you take stars like the Sun, they live for about 10 billion years. And to put that figure in perspective, we think the universe is about 13, 14 billion years old. So these stars live for most of the age of the universe. If you double the mass of your star, it shines eight times more brightly. So it's got twice as much fuel, but it burns it eight times faster. So your star lives for a quarter the amount of time. And if you go up to really massive stars like Betelgeuse, which weighs 18 times the mass of the Sun, that star will only live for 30 million years, which is nothing compared to the 10 billion year lifetime of the Sun. So what this means is that massive stars don't have very much time to diffuse away from the regions where they form. They tend to be found very close to star-forming regions. Stars like the Sun have got ages to move wherever they like in the galaxy. Now, you've probably seen pictures of spiral galaxies where the spirals appear a sort of bluey-yellow colour and they're quite bright and luminous. And the regions between the spirals appear a more reddy kind of colour. And what's going on there is that the spirals of the galaxy are density wave rather like sound waves. They are compressing the gas and stars are forming along those spiral arms. And what you're seeing are very massive stars along the spiral arms. Between the spiral lines, there's no star formation going on. You're seeing stars like the Sun, but you're not seeing the massive stars, because any stars there will have died.
0: Thanks, Dominic. So stars are not uniformly distributed, but form distinct patterns based on how long each type of star can survive. That was Dominic Ford, and he was joined by Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford to take on your cosmic queries. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at and do include a phone number if you'd like to record your question with us. But that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at the slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler from the Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.